Welcome to Unmiked, a video series that blurs the edges that connect the world of opera to just about everything else. My name is Joe Spector, and I'm the President and General Director of Arizona Opera. As a kid who grew up in Miami, Florida, with dreams of being a hard rock star when I was an adult, and who later ended up picking martial arts up and training in that for a big portion of my life, I have found those previous dreams and passions feeding into my everyday leadership of this opera company, Against All Odds. The idea of Unmiked, you know, came from this notion that really disparate lifestyles, passions, hobbies, experiences in a world that's totally unrelated that connects to the world of opera so that we can bring together people from these different lifestyles through this really wonderful art form. During each episode, I will be joined by a recognized professional from the opera field and a professional from another field who engages in similar work to demonstrate just how the elements of opera are the elements of our everyday lives. Hi, I'm Joe Spector, President and General Director of Arizona Opera, and I'm really delighted to welcome you to this, which is our uh, final episode of Unmiked for the 2020-21 season, an episode about ceiling breakers with uh, two really phenomenal leaders in the world of arts, uh, one in the space of opera and one in the uh, symphonic world. And uh, we're just going to dive right in. This is a, a terrific episode and a timely episode, and uh, we thank you for joining us. Our first guest today is Afton Battle. She is the general director of Fort Worth Opera, having joined the company just within the last year or so. And uh, what a year to become a first time CEO of an opera company. Uh, I'm gonna spare a little bit of bio right here because we're gonna dive in and hear from Afton directly about her experience and where she's coming from. Uh, but uh, as a, just a, a little bit of a preview, uh, we share in common a background as a singer and also coming from the space of uh, fundraising. So we're really looking forward to hearing more from Afton about her journey as a, as a new CEO. And we also have Deborah Borda, who is the, I wanna make sure I get this right, the Linda and Mitch Hart President and CEO of the New York Philharmonic. Uh, Deborah, this is the, the second time that she has been uh, in that role with the New York Philharmonic. Uh, in between has had a, a lengthy tenure in 17 years with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Uh, an extraordinary background and a former musician herself, which I think is notable, a former trained violist. And uh, it is a thrill to have uh, Deborah here with us, just one of the most extraordinary uh, careers in the leadership role of a performing arts organization at all. So uh, thank you both for being here. I wanna dive right in. And uh, I just wanna share at the outset that uh, all of the questions today uh, were questions that uh, were brought to us by women uh, I feel like this is such uh, an important time for women in leadership roles in the arts. And I really wanted the value of this conversation to really speak to the people who, uh, who I believe are, are ready to step into the light. I see those t-shirts, those the future is female. And uh, having grown up in a home, uh, my mom, Chris Nielsen, uh, was an a international business professor, seeing someone who you know, swam upstream in a, what was a male-dominated space. I just understand how important it is to have a female voice at the top of not just organizations, but entire sectors. So, so let's start with you, Afton, if you don't mind. If you could just, I mean, this could be the entire hour, but if you could just talk a little bit about the journey that brought you to this point, and I, I sort of previewed a little bit, but uh, what you think people should hear in, in, you know, in a couple minutes, where you came from and how you got to the place you are today. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me on, Joe. It's a pleasure always to be in your company. And Deborah, it is an honor to be in your company uh, as well. I very much look forward to um, hearing from you um, and being inspired just by your presence, but also your story. Um, so how uh, my journey, it was very odd, but uh, masterfully created, I think. Um, started off as a singer and came out of graduate school at the time of the recession and was having a really difficult time finding that stability um, with uh, obtaining a job uh, or jobs as we do. Um, and made the really very mindful, conscious decision to move from a career in performing to trying to start a career in arts administration. And I say trying because it really took me the better part of 10 years to find my way into arts administration and 11 or 12 years then to find my way back into opera. So um, went about it through higher education and finding my niche really in development and what that really meant, what development is, because it's so many things. Um, so writing a lot of grants, um, institutional type of work, and still really trying to find and hedge my way into the performing arts. And that came finally uh, after I met a wonderful woman by the name of Angelique Power, who is the president of the Field Foundation. She started an organization called Enrich Chicago, which was founded to help um, administrators of color really break into the arts administration world in Chicago, which is um, deeply segregated uh, and uh, it's just a white populated field. And so it was through that connection with her and her mentorship, I landed my first position um, at a nonprofit uh, organization. It was uh, the National Museum of Mexican Art in Chicago. And so from there, I really just kept on the swimming upstream, trying at every, at every turn to make my way back to what I consider home, which is in this space of opera. And it wasn't until this past summer um, that that finally came to fruition. Um, and that also, again, happened uh, masterfully designed uh, in a really weird way to say that. But I honestly wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with the three of you had it not been for this pandemic and had it not been for the murder of George Floyd. Um, all of that together culminated in what we now have all taken part of in some way, which were these panel discussions about racial justice and inequity. And in that um, really sparked conversations about not seeing women of color or people of color in leadership positions at opera companies. And um, that led to conversations that led me to Fort Worth Opera, that led me to here. Uh, and so that's why I say it was masterfully designed in, uh, in a way that I, I, don't, I don't think any of us would have imagined. Uh, and it is painful to have to um, put them together, but they go together. Mm -hmm. If it had not been for a pandemic and it had not been for the murder of George Floyd in a pandemic, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't believe I'd be here. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's very poignant. And, 
you and I uh, just had the opportunity to meet right about at that juncture, just before you you went on uh, to uh, Fort Worth Opera, and and that's really your first uh, administrative role at an opera company at all, even though this was a, an art form that was you know very much part of your your bio growing up as a singer. So. Thank you for sharing that. And you're right. I mean, we would never choose this way to come together, the three of us, for a conversation. But what a gift it is to be able to talk about this and hopefully shine a path for uh, other women leaders that are coming up and hoping to follow in, in both of your footsteps. Um, Absolutely. Deborah, uh, your background. I mean, it, it's, it's such an extraordinary storied uh, bio and and. Uh, anyone can go online and read about you, and it, it is it is just humbling to see what you've accomplished. I, I mean, um, female leader, male leader, it, 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 anybody would be lucky to follow in either of your footsteps. But but maybe just a, a, a bit of a highlight reel, Deborah, and and maybe a couple points of, that that people may not know but should know about your coming up through uh, arts leadership and what brought you to this point. Well, first of all, hello to both of you, Afton. Great to meet you. Fun to be here with you. Um, Joe, of course, good to see you again. I'm in the world of symphony, uh, but I love opera. And as you know, uh, I'm fairly involved with it in other ways. Um, so it's, uh, when, I read my, uh, when I read my biography or in some place where I have to be introduced, it always just makes me feel old because <laughs> it's so long at this point. But, uh, you know, so fascinating, Afton, to hear what you were speaking about. You know, for me also, trained as a musician, it was a very, conscious decision, very conscious decision, because I was the person in my string quartet um, who always made the programs, brought the music stands, picked the music, collected the check, shared it. I was always there. Um, and I was at Tanglewood one summer and I had a, a very good friend. Uh, I was studying there and I had a very good friend who was one of the only women at that time in the Boston Symphony. So we would hang out together and you could go to rehearsals, which was just a terrific thing. And I remember being backstage with her and, and noticing all these guys who were dressed in suits. And I said, who, who are these? Because the stagehands and everybody else, it's 90 degrees, you know, they're wearing shorts and flip-flops. And I said, who, who are those guys? Because actually double-breasted suits ties. And she said, I remember, oh, that's the management, as if it was mm -hmm. one word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, you know what? In those days, they were not only all white, which they are mostly still, I will say, but they were all male, mm -hmm. all male. And so I became interested in it. And I sort of started to learn about it. And uh, I decided to move out of my consciously comfortable place one summer. And actually, my first job was at the Marlboro Music Festival as an assistant scheduling director. I only got the job because I could spell Beethoven, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which actually, I'm a terrible speller, but I could spell that. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and at any rate, so my career sort of progressed um, from there. Um, it was a different kind of career because at the beginning, um, there were many different moves, and I was very criticized for those at the time, but I honestly felt that I had to make them because it was so difficult at that time getting ahead as a woman and also as a gay woman. The combination of both of those, um, although I have nothing to complain about, my career has been glorious for me. Um, but those early days were a battle. They were moving forward. And if it hadn't been partly for the mentorship of the man who ran the San Francisco Symphony, Peter Pastreich, but I think also my willingness um, to take risks, not only in terms of moving to other jobs, but when I got to the place, taking risks in trying to form alignment around a different kind of vision that might have existed. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think that was very, very helpful to me. Um, of course, uh, I was the first woman to be appointed. Uh, I think we called it managing director in those days. These names change all the time. Now I'm a president. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, managing director of the New York Philharmonic. And I was there for almost 10 years. And I actually left in frustration at that time for two reasons. One was, um, as I say, at that time, the board was extremely musically and socially conservative. And there were so many different places that I came from. I was, I was also a composer. I, mean, I was very interested in composition. Um, and I just to, to kind of moved the Philharmonic in the direction of what, it, at that time, what a 21st century orchestra would be. Plus, I wanted to, uh, we really needed to renovate what was uh, Avery Fisher Hall. And I started that project in 1995. And finally, in frustration, uh, when I was offered the job out in LA, which I had never assumed that I would ever live in LA, mm -hmm. uh, moved out there. So I figured I'd go out. And the reason that, that what, what, what attracted me to go out was they were trying to build Walt, build Walt Disney Concert Hall. Mm -hmm. And actually, Frank Geary recruited me and I fell in love with him and I fell in love with the design and a sense of possibility there. So I went out, I was gonna go out for five years and get the hall open. This, this may be a, a, a story that all of you know. And I stayed there 17 years. <laughs> it's like the woman who came to dinner, right? <laughs> or or well Stayed for dessert. <laughs> um, but it was a, a magnificent time for me. I was so rewarding professionally and personally. We actually did open the new Walt Disney Concert Hall. We completely reimagined what the Los Angeles Philharmonic could be. We launched one of the great um, training programs for underserved kids in the nation, Youth Orchestra LA Yola. Um, we discovered Gustavo Dudamel, who became just blossomed in every intellectual, social, and musical mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And so, why didn't I just stay there? Well, you know, karma, right? right. And I think um, they came back to me 17 years later from New York. And they said, We're going to build this hall, we're going to renovate uh, David Geffen Hall. And um, I actually, in meeting the, the leadership there, believed it had a chance and I could be a part of it. And so I took yet another risk mm -hmm. and I came back to New York. And uh, it's, been, um, it's been an exciting, it was really exciting before the pandemic and then it went crazy. But mm -hmm. you know, the good news for us is that um, we were actually able to take advantage, if you can say that, to find the silver lining of the pandemic that when we were closed down for so long, we went 400 days without giving a concert indoors. Unbelievable. Um, and we won't really come back full, you know, full, full force indoors till late September. But um, we used that time actually because the hall was closed down to move ahead quickly, raise a lot of money. And the hall is now going to open the renovated hall two years earlier than it was going to in the fall of 22. But there was something else that happened, which is that we aligned around a different vision for what the hall could be and how it could truly change mm -hmm. um, and how it could serve the community much more in terms of mm -hmm. all of the public spaces and real transformation of the inside. So, um, you know, in the middle of all of this, there was the murder of George Floyd in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, the, the question, and I don't have an answer for this, and I, there, I know there's lots of other things you want to talk about, but the question I ask myself, I ask myself um, is, how how have we changed? You know, you know, in Messiah, when when there's that famous line, and we shall all be changing. Mm -hmm. I think we have been, but I don't think we quite know how yet. And that is the opportunity. That's the true opportunity of the time in front of us now, mm -hmm. because 
and I'll finish up with this. I mean, my career has been dedicated to music and to making a difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To really holding that those two, you know, those two precepts very close. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a time where both are possible and both could never be more important. Indeed. Yeah. And it's a, I, I think that's a kinship I feel with, with both of you. Um, you know, what's the point of doing this work if we're not here to make a positive change of, so forth, of some sort? And, and it's also the main reason I thought about putting you two together on this show, because I think of you both as incredibly positive agents of change. And, uh, you know, Deborah, that's been, um, you, you, you talk about this, the story career, but it, it, it's not like it, you started making change just on your return into the New York Phil. It, it seems like it's been a hallmark of your leadership the whole way through. And I, I, I think I want to pair sort of two questions um, and, and uh, anecdotes maybe about obstacles that you faced or maybe a key thematic type of obstacle that you faced the whole way through and what mindset you've had to employ in order to overcome them. What are the, what's the tool chest you've reached into um, through those times, and particularly if it's something that's consistent over the years? When, I, when I've been in this kind of spot, here's what I've done to overcome it. Because I think the, the work of leading an arts organization, particularly in this time, is one of constant adversity of some sort or another. You have to overcome it. And over the arch of a career, I can only imagine that that's uh, expanded. So obstacles that you faced, themes of obstacles, and, and what's, what is the approach that you have taken? You're consistently changing over time to overcome those. Uh, Deborah, Deborah first. Well, I think for every leader, um, there has to be confidence and a a specific amount of resilience because things aren't, they're going to go wrong, frankly, more often than they Mm -hmm. go right. (laughs) And so, I mean, I think it has been, for me, my unwillingness to settle. And if I couldn't get to, say, I had decided on location X and I couldn't get there by the route that I thought was going to be possible, mm-hmm. I took a different route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that also, I think, entails being able to convince other, other people to communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. communication skills are so important to communicate a vision to communicate a way forward. So, but for personally, for myself, it was, you know, I do get very discouraged sometimes and I will, but if I do get that discouraged, I will either find a way to move to where I think we need to go or I will make a change. Right. Um, And so one of the things I was just talking to a young person who just taken on a CEO role someplace and she was asking for some advice. And I said, you know, here's a very strong piece of advice. When you first get to a new job, you have about, six months where you have total credibility everybody is in awe they want you to mm-hmm. succeed and this is your moment this is when you right. have to move ahead and mm-hmm. you have to be brave in making decisions at that time and then in creating alignment within the institution but you know just to a very small example if there's been a finance director that you know should go you know what you do it at the beginning because a year later it isn't going to get any easier. In fact, you might not do it. So from the very practical, I think, you know, the kind of pragmatic taking those actions to then bringing 
organizations together into it. So I'm not talking so much about my personal challenges, I guess. You know, my, my personal challenge was not giving up. When I, you know, had a very big job, I was basically deputy director of the San Francisco Symphony, and I could not get interviewed for another major orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in fact, I, I was finally interviewed for one. I was offered the Pittsburgh Symphony to be the CEO there. They flew me to London to meet Lauren Mazel, and we the deal was made. And uh, when I got back to my hotel room, it was decided I was not I would not be the new CEO because Maestro had decided no woman would do this job. Wow. May he rest in peace, so I can tell this story now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're we're fortunate to hear you tell it. And, and so yeah, I, went, I had to go instead of to one of the major orchestras. I went to a wonderful but small orchestra, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Mm -hmm. We invented the concept of music director and what a chamber orchestra could do. So I've mm -hmm. I've told this in a sort of roundabout way. I apologize, but no, I love it. I love it. I love it. But let me, let me just one quick follow up, though. You, I mean, resilience unquestionably is something we all need to really embrace to do this work. But what what do you do to char charge your battery? I mean, sometimes you take that lick, you think you're going to be heading in this direction. You know that that's the right destination, but you're going to have to go around. What what do you do when you take that when you take that hit? You need to get back up. Is is there anything that you tap into in order to find that? that will to get back up is or is it just yeah, first, naturally there yeah first i sulk <laughs> okay good let me write that down I have a good amount of that i try to do that privately although of course you need to be able to do that with friends and with your really trusted colleagues uh, and then i just i i won't i won't give up I just right. won't give up. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have a managerial way of explaining that. Uh -huh. mm. um, but I won't give up. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I, I think that's a that's a pretty good approach. Um, Afton, so so Deborah is talking about these uh, these critical first six months, and it, it, my math might be wrong, but you you have to be around uh, six seven months. I was reading an article um, about you're coming to Fort Worth and getting prepared for today, and. It was published on my birthday, October sixth, twenty twenty. Man, what a what a wild birthday that was this year! But but you're like right around that cusp. You, you came in with a mandate, and uh, and the the Fort Worth Opera uh, board, you know, made a very conscientious decision in bringing you on. Um, I'm certain you faced obstacles along the way, which are just built in, and some exacerbated, no doubt, by by uh, pandemic and. Um, and and who knows what other factors of, of um, inequity. So mm -hmm. if you could just share, you know, either from Fort Worth or, or before, um, you know, obstacles that you faced along the way and how and how you deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. So I am like seven months in, <laughs> and um, very much like Deborah, uh, I'm stubborn like uh, a bull, and because of that, I don't give up. Mm -hmm. um, I tried, uh, I've been trying to find my way, like I said earlier, to back into the space of opera since I made the decision to stop singing. And that was like in 2015. I'd been trying all that time, willing to take significant pay cuts, the lowest level job just to get my foot through the door, uh, and nothing you know, was breaking or nothing was, uh, was happening. And I just kept going. I, I kept trying, I kept trying and trying to take the steps like Deborah mentioned, uh, in my career to put me on that level to where 
I thought people would begin to take me seriously mm -hmm. as an arts administrator, you know, really making moves very quickly, which I was criticized for, but it was all very thoughtful. It was thoughtful because I had a forward trajectory um, to hope with the hope of getting and finding myself in this place where, like I said, people would take me seriously in the space of opera. Um, so that's my personal, you know, obstacles is take being taken seriously, I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, and being able to find my way and my place and my find myself in the space of uh, having an opportunity even just to have a phone call with someone about a job, you know, um, to just have a phone screening or just that first, you know, interview. Um, and it, it always eluded me and I just kept going for it and um, was willing to, to the chagrin of my husband, uproot myself <laughs> in any way, you know, to just make that first step to just have that first opportunity mm -hmm. um and so that was my personal struggle and i just i i don't give up you know um good bad or indifferent um i just keep fighting uh i just keep fighting in terms of you know overcoming those types of struggles in this in my position i mean picking up a job as general director of an opera company in the middle of a pandemic was crazy to begin with, but I knew that I was led here for a reason. And because mm -hmm. of that, I had no other choice but to be successful. Mm -hmm. And knowing that this art form, opera, uh, you know, as Dr. Fauci might have said, is, you know, toxic because we spew these aerosols. Yeah, <laughs> you know, here's the magic formula <laughs> for the most difficult art form to produce in a pandemic. <laughs> exactly. Um, I knew that that was an opportunity for me and Fort Worth Opera to align with my vision and goal for this company, which was to take us beyond the stage because the stage is forbidden at this point, you know, mm -hmm. the theaters are forbidden to take us beyond that and into the community to reignite and re-engage a relationship with the community that had been forgotten, mm -hmm. that had not been stewarded in a way that the community felt recognized and seen by this company. Mm -hmm. And very much like Deborah said in the first six months, it was the hill I was then remain on and will continue to remain on and will die gladly on this hill, which is making this company revered as the people's company. Because we have so much to offer the community and it is something that I hold very near and dear to my, to my heart, mm -hmm. um, individually as just a person, of having true authentic engagement, civic engagement, community engagement, programming initiatives that bring an added value to the community that we serve mm -hmm. so that we can be truly representative uh, so that the community can see themselves on stage off stage but also in every facet of the of the organization and how we move um, and what we are able to provide so covid was a challenge obviously um, you know in starting this position but I had to go all different ways around getting around this pandemic mm -hmm. and what the goal was. And the goal was to 
reposition Fort Worth Opera in a way in which people would take us seriously mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, maybe that's the theme. Maybe that is the theme, like, you know, that you talked about, Joe, like, you know, these obstacle themes is fighting to be taken seriously. And there was just like small things within the community, but also within the organization that we had to overcome in order to get there. Um, and it was just with tenacity and a lot of grit and a lot of hard work and just being real honest and transparent with my board and the staff and saying, hey, look, we are 10 people deep. We all have to do things that we were not hired to do that maybe we don't want to do, but this company needs us to do. Mm-hmm. So we all have to lace up our shoes. We all have to hit the pavement. We have to move these boxes and set up the AV. Like we all have to dig in together to do that in order to, for lack of a better word, you know, kind of save this company. And so that was just finding all of the ways that we could imagine to get to the end the end goal. And we're not there yet because it still is out there and we're still going beyond and pushing further and making goals that are further out there. But getting around the obstacle of, yes, COVID, getting around the financial obstacle, we've all lost so much, you know, revenue because of ticket sales and, you know, all of these other things, but getting around those obstacles, getting around the obstacle of um, people being skeptical of me as a leader, uh, never having been in this position before, um, me as a leader as a female, me as a leader as a Black female, getting around those obstacles and proving myself um, not only worthy, but deserving of this position at this time and this company deserving of Mm. me in this position at this time to move us along. So this is not for the faint at heart it is definitely not um yeah um you know I, you, I i mentioned before that you and i got to know each other uh last summer right as you were thinking about this decision to move over to fort worth and you know i i, I was sort of I, I felt very selfish and advocating for you to you know to come into this sort of role from the relatively safe world of of development where you know there's always so much need uh there's so much need among nonprofits for for passionate fundraisers and uh and and, and you know you're you're the only black woman uh general director among a, a budget level one or two opera company and, and i just thought man it's going to be so good for this field to have someone who is is out there who looks and sounds like you to have a voice in what we do and and i i I'm almost certain I shared with you at the time that I recognize, you know, Deborah's talking about, uh, you know, the, the guy with the double-breasted uh, suit in the back, the, the management, um, arguably, you know, uh, except for the the bald head and the t-shirt, I, I uh, don't have the double-breasted suit. Um, I'm, I know that I've benefited from being a little bit more like someone expects to see in a role of leadership. So, so as a female leader, and and you know, Afton, you're you're new in the CEO position, but but obviously the eyes are on you. Um, what would you say to other women uh, of of any color in, in thinking about stepping into this kind of role? You've talked about the need for perseverance and so forth. 
but but what advice would you share for for someone who wants to who wants to follow in your footsteps do it do it or you'll regret it and do it to, you know, this sounds kind of cliche to say, do it to the best of your ability. I mean, that's a given, right? That That's just kind of what we do, uh, especially women. But do it with everything that you naturally have, that you have within you, and then some. Um, and I would say to take up your space, to take up your space at a table, in a room, um, and to ask for what you need and what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it sounds easier said than done, and it is definitely easier said than done, but there are so many talented women out there in the space of arts administration who oftentimes opt out of applying for a job or, you know, seeking that next step because of the simple reason of the way a job description is written. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. I said, unregrettably, in a forum uh, of, uh, of women was apply for positions like as though you are a mediocre white man. <laughs> You what know, do you mean? Well, you have to you have to expand on that. What now do you mean? I have to expand on that. <laughs> I, I, you know, our industry is led by majority white men. Sure. I'm not saying that they are mediocre, it's okay, but right. what I am saying, <laughs> what I am saying is the audacity, and you can you can use that in whichever way you want, but men oftentimes have this innate sense of privilege and just audacity. They will throw their hat in the ring for anything, whether they think that they are qualified or not. Mm -hmm. Women, on the other hand, oftentimes are more conservative, are more reserved. They will, we will find with a fine tooth comb and just a fine highlighter. Do I check every box? Do I I check every box? That's it. Yeah. That is what we ask ourselves. Five to seven years, ooh, I don't have it. Uh, I don't know if I'll match up, if, I'll, if I will, you know, add up. No, That's I remember, I yeah, I'm sorry. I, I just, I remember that, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in, but I remember that moment so clearly when I, when I applied for the, the job in, in Austin Opera. Uh, I was working at the Met at the time, fundraising, and, uh, and I remember looking at those job descriptions and I remember thinking, Oh, what the heck? I'll go for it. What do I have to lose? And um, and and as you as you're talking, I'm thinking about you know that uh, audacity. I don't think of it as audacity. I, what I think what I what I I think what what I experience on my side of it is I have a thought and I want to share it, and I feel like that that thought may have value, and it doesn't occur to me that I I need to pass some sort of litmus test in order to get to that expression. But but I I, I totally get it from the other side of the equation. The uh, whether it's uh, I don't know if you want to characterize it as sort of bravery or sort of like this, there's a hurdle you have to get over to say I'm good enough to mm-hmm. have an opinion on this. I'm good enough for my voice to be heard. Uh, Deborah, does this is this resonant for you? Uh, you know this this idea of having to define your space when you arrive in a leadership position in an organization, or or is it or has it been more innate for you where you feel like you've you've come in with a mandate and you're able to. Uh, 
express yourself and achieve results right out of the gate? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Do we naturally, I mean, Afton is clearly a charismatic, so she is going to inhabit a space. And I think people would pay a lot of attention to you, Afton, um, because you've got that special charisma that leaders need to have. Um, so I guess I haven't worried so much about that. <laughs> I've just gone in and uh, tried to do what I, what I thought was the uh, exciting and right thing to do. I guess so when I think about women leaders, I mean, one of the things I think about women in general and female leaders is they tend to be more inclusive and better communicators than mm -hmm. men. They will think about how the entire organization um, has to understand what is happening, has to have specific things communicated to them. So I think that's something that I wouldn't ever want a woman to think that their best pathway forward is to act like a man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important that we inhabit who we are and we don't mm -hmm. pretend to be something else. And, and that brings me I think, to think about another issue that is a, can be very problematic for all of us as human beings, uh, but especially perhaps as managers, and that is, it has to do with honesty. And there are two forms of it that are critical. And I think if I could point to an aspect of why I've been able to be successful, I have been adamant about being honest. And I just think that is so critical mm -hmm. to our work, and to inhabiting the entire environment around us. But part of honesty, part of honesty is self-honesty, being honest with oneself. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is very difficult in a leadership position because how many times have you been in a meeting, Joe or Afton, when you're sitting there and people are talking and you feel like I, you're thinking about the answer mm -hmm. because you have to as the leader. And I have found that in moments when I am sure I know the answer, I'm just sure I'm I now reflect because I am often wrong in mm -hmm. that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that kind of reflection, one of the things, this happened to me about 10 years ago in LA, um, we were, things were going very, very well. Uh, but I wasn't enjoying my job. And I, not only was I not enjoying it, I felt like I wasn't really that good at it. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about what had changed in me, what had changed in the organization. And all of this turned out to be quite positive, actually. And what I had been trained in a very old-fashioned kind of, right? I was never had any training. I just went and did it. But in a kind mm -hmm. of old-fashioned model where it was top-down, you have the leader, and he tells everybody what to do, and you bring the control. issue to them, mm -hmm. and then they they speak, and mm -hmm. you know he speaks. And so I tried to emulate as much as I could that kind of top-down management mm -hmm. style. And you know, as our organizations become and became more complex, and I actually became, in, although I felt worse at what I was doing, I was actually becoming better at it. Mm -hmm. I came to see that there was a different leader leadership model. And it was more inclusive. It was listening more. It was, it was giving more to other people in terms of responsibility. And so I, I think as these management models of effectiveness change, um, we change. And again, we talked before about how have we changed? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's another important part of it. But I go back to, you know, I think it is just critical for women leaders not to emulate male leadership styles. Find your own style. Mm -hmm. You know, get it and do it. Um, and as you said, after have courage in doing it. Mm 
have courage in doing it. Um, because leaders, whether you're leading, you know, a high tech company or an opera company or a symphony or a museum, leaders need courage, mm -hmm. they need mm -hmm. honesty, and they, they need courage. And the, the combination of those two can be pretty devastating in a, mm -hmm. in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, I, although I, I don't have any questions here about your advice for white men running arts organizations, I'm really <laughs> taking this uh, to heart because, you know, I have found that it's the times when I, I listen more and I include more opinions and I, and I, and I defer uh, to someone else's more expert judgment on something that I get better results from my organization. And that can feel like failure. You, it can feel like I'm not contributing because I don't necessarily have that best answer, but you're actually helping your organization the most when you tap into that knowledge when it comes from elsewhere. Yeah, so you, I, you, put, you, put your yeah you put your finger on it, Joe, that it feels when you're sitting there that you have to take the responsibility and do, but it's actually sharing that responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know I, I've, I've been in Afton, I bet you've experienced this as well, where you feel this moment of, it's like you're failing as a leader, but you're not. You're mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I laugh because I've been uh, right there, uh, feeling like I have, uh, failed as uh, the leader of this organization um, in ways of not, uh, whether that's uh, failing my staff or uh, the community, um, and not measuring up if I, if I can to what others are doing. And so when you said, Deborah, you know, for women not to try to have a leadership style as as men you know as men often do i was like yes and you know leading a company or leading an organization in the way that makes sense for you as an individual but also for your organization right i sometimes sit back and feel like i have not been successful and not succeeded when i look at what my other colleagues in the industry are doing and how far along they are, you know, making their whole season announcements and, you know, doing all these wonderful things. And I'm so excited for them. And I sit back and I look and I, I, I do feel devastated and like we have not arrived yet because maybe we haven't made a season announcement or we haven't, you know, had a performance, you know, wherever at someone's racetrack or what have you. FOMO. But, <laughs> exactly. But then I have to remember that while we may not be there, that is probably not where we're supposed to be. You know, it is not meant for us as a company to be there. Like, you know, one of the things that I've had to remind myself is I will be able to measure success for this company with how we come out of this pandemic um, fiscally, how we come out of this pandemic artistically, you know, what kind of stamp have we been able to make within the industry, but also in the community in this time of a pause, you know, we haven't at all collapsed on ourselves and just not done anything. We remain so busy. And <laughs> I even look at my calendar and I'm like, oh God, when can I take a vacation? Um, mm -hmm but to not measure myself against someone else's 
uh, I guess, success, right? And I oftentimes have to remind myself of that. And I, I would say, I would also say that to another female leader in, uh, in this world is not to measure yourself up against what else you see in the industry and who else you see moving in that direction. Because, you know, my parents used to say this to me all the time, you know, their struggle is not your struggle and their position is not yours, you know, and to keep your eye on the prize. Diana Soviero used to tell me when I was singing, you know, you have to be like a, a horse that has the blinders on where mm-hmm. you are just focused on what is in front of you to mm-hmm. get to the end of the of the race. And so I really appreciate you saying that, Deborah, because I have to I have to remind myself of that all the time. Yeah. You know, there, there's another point to it as I listen to you speak about it, because I've run smaller organizations and the biggest. Um, but I think what I would say about this is every organization should be unique unto itself. And I'll use it if I can, because we're all musicians, a musical analogy. You would not play or sing Mozart the way you would Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff. And because you play Mozart one way, that's the right way to play it. And then Tchaikovsky has its own right way. And so I, I, I think that the beauty of smaller organizations is the ability to be truly creative, to be much more nimble, and to take risks. Um, when you take a risk at the New York Philharmonic, you can blow a million dollars in a moment. It's just, which is okay. You know, hopefully we haven't blown anything. But, <laughs> but you know, that's another thing. So I, I do think that's important because we have to judge ourselves in the universe we're on. And sometimes, have you ever had the experience where you're speaking to somebody and you think later on, well, I guess I'm on the planet uh, Mars and they're on some planet I don't even know that exists. So we're on our own planets and they all interrelate with each other. But um, that kind of comparative thinking I find very harmful for myself. So I really, I try to stay away from it. Um, but I want to say one other thing, because you were, you were talking about this, both of you before, which is in terms of leadership, and this is really tough, but that willingness to take risks. It's so important um, because if we always follow the easy path, um, we, we, won't, we won't get to as, a, as remarkable a place. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because it's frightening to do that sometimes and people don't support you. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's when it takes that gumption, what you talked about, the leadership and being willing to keep climbing up that hill after. That's, mm-hmm. that's so important. Yeah, it's great results come only through perseverance, through discomfort. And that's, mm. that's when change is, that's, that's when change happens. Uh, we we could we could uh, man I I get to this point in the uh, conversation and I think wow we we this could be the first three hour episode of the, <laughs> the show so people um, would get bored after that. <laughs> I, I won't one you, hour is great you two are so so phenomenal and I I really am I I feel like there is a maybe next next season there's a second uh, second episode because I think people want to hear what what uh, you have to say when these these different perspectives, but the streams converge in so many ways. Um, I'd, I'd be remiss not to not to at least tie off with this one question in terms of, and I think it's implicit in a lot of the things we've been discussing already. But uh, the symphonic world, the opera, operatic world, are are in a period of transformation. Uh, we're in a period of um, you know almost a, a reckoning, trying to understand who we are as more diverse, equitable, and inclusive organizations. Uh, going forward, 
Um, where do you see us on that path? We'll start, we'll start with Deborah. Where do you see us on that pathway? And where do you see the most opportunity to affect more positive change and becoming organizations that are more reflective of our community? Because I think that's, that's key to our sustainability, our impact, and you know, why, why we're here. You know, Joe, rather than talking in generalities, um, if I could tell you, and I'll try to do this pretty in a brief way, a story about something we just experienced at the New York Philharmonic, and it was uh, a learning experience that changed how we move forward. So, you know, we were, we've been like everybody else, haven't been able to perform. We hadn't done a concert for over 400 days, but last summer, you know, we just felt we had to do something. So I'm speaking to a well-known star of the opera. I was, I was having Zoom cocktails with Anthony Roth Gustafs. Okay. <laughs> and and we, we came up with this crazy idea, which was, Basically, we get a truck and drove, drive it around the city, and we put the musicians in the back yeah, of the truck and jump out and give pop up concerts. Right, right. So um, we named it Bandwagon, and mm -hmm. Anthony was our bandmeister, and we drove that truck all over the city. And what we felt was, if the people can't come to the music, we'll bring music to the people. Perfect. But we didn't bring music just to downtown Manhattan, or there was mm -hmm. nobody in downtown Manhattan, but to the east side. We went all over the damn city, all of the boroughs, and we went mm -hmm. to places I had never, I'm a New Yorker, but I had never been. And when Bandwagon would pull up, and it looked really cool because it was all painted out, and people would jump out, and we'd set up the sound quickly, and people would play. And uh, the musicians would play. And at first the musicians were a little nervous, but then they really signed up for it. But you'd be there in a street corner in the Bronx, and what would happen would be people would sometimes laugh, they'd sometimes sing along. Right. Um, because we do some popular, hearing Anthony sing Maria was really great. I, oh, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they'd dance mm -hmm. and they would cry. And then sometimes they'd just yell at us because mm -hmm. they'd be crazy people. And it's New York, everybody right, yells right, at us right. all the time. Um, so at any rate, but it was, it was, it was fun and it was, it was fun and it felt good to us at the time. But as we talked about this summer, because we still can't give concerts indoors, we thought about what had we learned and what, what we had learned was this, that, and I don't mean to sound too hard on ourselves, but because it was the right thing to do and everybody loved it, but was it a kind of tokenism or a, a noblesse mm -hmm. oblige mm -hmm. that we went to places and pulled in and gave our concert and got out? Although people liked it, but right. you know, was there another way to do it? So this, we are having bandwagon again, we call it bandwagon 2.0, but we're doing it differently this time. Basically we're doing multiple three-day festivals across New York City and we have a big container that we've kitted out. You know, it's about mm -hmm. 20 feet long, you know, those metal containers. Sure. And it opens up and it has Meyer sound and a video screen. But mm -hmm. we've gone to very specific communities and we've partnered with the Better Jamaica for one week, um, Casita Maria for another, wow. um, you know, uh, National Black Theater. And we're making connections in a different way. And we're having you know people who are performers from that neighborhood perform as well sometimes mm -hmm. joining with us sometimes as soloists and to me that was it was such a learning experience and now we're moving to to the next phase of it so so i think that's an opportunity mm -hmm. you know i think another opportunity for us was and you know there was some criticism of this is you know last year it's so funny when when, when that sort of gap of time that happened you know was the ratification of the 19th amendment mm -hmm. which allowed women, white women, to be able to vote in the United States. So we undertook a commissioning project 
because less than 3% of the music performed in almost no opera, although that's changing, is mm -hmm. written by women. And so we commissioned 19 fantastic and diverse women composers mm -hmm. to write world premieres for the Philharmonic. That was the Project um, 19, I think. Project 19, it's called right. Project 19. And to see people's reaction to it, to see how that's growing. So it's by um, direct action. It's by you know living and acting that we change. And I think as bad as it's been and the millions of dollars we've all lost, um, it's, it is in its own way an opportunity. Indeed. Or it has been. Thank you for that, Deborah. That's, that's, that's powerful. And I, I found myself thinking about the work that Afton's been doing with performances out on the street. You have a flatbed that Fort Worth Opera has been taking around. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I saw your eyebrows going up when Deborah's talking about these partnerships they formed. I, I could see the cogs turning. Oh, yeah, National Black Theater. I think we could, we could reach out too. Um, it, what about you? Where, where are we? It, you know, you're, you're not new to opera. You're new to this role, but you're not new to opera. Um, where do you see? our field is, and, and if you want to pull up a specific story, um, great, I think that's that's always more powerful to be able to talk about a succinct example, but um, you know, where, where's your hope for where we're headed and what do you think it's going to take for us to get there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that in, in this time of the pause and COVID, many of us in the industry um, have had to do a lot of self-reflection, uh, obviously. And in the fever of the summer, when it was its hottest, not temperature-wise, but the fever of, what, of the racial and civic unrest, um, there was a lot of burning and churning in the opera industry in our space to identify, to reckon with, the uh, inequities in our industry, uh, just casting, you know, and uh, dealing with that, dealing with the representation of more BIPOC, Black and Brown, Indigenous folks on stage as well as off, right? So there was so much of that happening. And when I came into this industry again, in this position, I knew I had done something by winning this job and it was now my responsibility to take this platform that I was given to do everything in within my power to make good on my my promises to not only myself but my promises to uh, the community by way of bringing more programming and initiatives and more genuine opportunities, like Deborah said, to the community in a way that was not and is not uh, self-serving, that is not, well, this is what we have to give, so here it is, you're gonna take it or not, if not, then we'll move on. But in a way that is, we see that there's a need, we've identified a shared need, or we've identified community partners who have a need, and you know what, we have something that we can give them and fill that need mm -hmm. to be an added value to their, uh, to their life, to their community, to their young people, to adults, all of that. And so just like Deborah was explaining, you know, about uh, uh, the Philharmonic and their truck, I was like, it, that's exactly it. It, that is the change that we need to be. That is the change that 
we ought to continue to seek out because it is what drives, in my opinion, the true representation. In a city like Fort Worth that has uh, a high population of Hispanic um, and Mexican immigrants who has a high population of uh, Black African Americans, if we don't show that we are inclusive of the community by bringing the representation, like Deborah said it, to, to their doorstep. We can never ask them to come to ours downtown at this big fancy hall because most oftentimes they don't feel welcome. They don't feel recognized and seen because they don't see themselves there. Mm-hmm. I've had many conversations with folks when I arrived about, you know, having the company having done a Porgy and Bess a few years ago and then of course, igniting relationships with the Black community. And once the curtain goes down, then those relationships are not continued. They're not stewarded. Mm -hmm. And that failure to be a change agent in that civic environment. And so that's what, that is what we've set out to do. And we've done that with our pop-up concerts, our Fuego. We have done it by making these same types of very important partnerships uh, within the community um, by bringing uh, a service, a civic service that matches their need, not ours, because it is not self-serving for us, but that matches the need of the institution, of the, of the, of the partner, of the community. And something for me that was, um, I felt like I could have if retirement was upon me, I felt like I could have reti- retired after this, but was producing a night of black excellence for Fort Worth Opera. Mm-hmm. That particular program for me was indicative. I mean, it was a hundred percent of what this industry, of what our industry needs to move toward which is representation, yes, on stage, but it is also the representation of the creative content and the, cre- uh, the creatives who make that happen. Mm-hmm. I very specifically set out to hire all Black creatives to produce that concert. Mm-hmm. Producer, director, uh, production team, staff, all the singers, I mean, everyone from nuts to bolts, that entire program was created, designed, produced, all of it by Black creatives and local within the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Mm -hmm. So that was my, uh, my rollout, or not my rollout, but like my stamp and my foot and my stake in the ground by saying, uh, of saying that this company will be an inclusive company. Uh, Let me rephrase that. This company will be the true representation of the community through inclusivity of all things, Mm -hmm. of all things. Mm -hmm. Uh, that That is a lot. And, and there are similarities here, partnerships, drawing upon the local energy and really trying to come to people where they are. Um, I've taken us past time and uh, I really feel like, um, uh, I, I feel like we could keep talking and there, there's just so much to glean from what both of you have shared today. Uh, I hope you'll save a spot in your calendars for next season so we can get together again and check in on the New York Phil and Fort Worth Opera and see where you are. 
Uh, I want to thank you so much for being part of this uh, final episode of Unlike for the for the season. Uh, I've just absolutely loved it, and I feel like this it, it, this this episode is not just for women. It's not just for BIPOC women. It's for it's for people like me that are trying to do this work better, and uh, can benefit from your story. So, thank you so much for being here with us today, uh, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this uh, final episode of Unlike for the 2020-21 season, and we'll see you next year. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Unmiked, where we blur the edges that connect the world of opera to just about everything else. A new episode will be released each month, so be sure to check our website, azopera.org, join our email list, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Unmiked is a part of Arizona Opera's Connection Lab program, a new series of digital and public offerings designed to facilitate a connection between Arizona communities familiar with our company, as well as opera goers and others well beyond our state. Arizona Opera is grateful to our lead digital sponsors for the 2020-21 season, Ron and Kay McDougall. Arizona Opera's next-gen programs are made possible through the support of Karen Fruin, Roma Whitcoff, Jeanette J. Siegel, the Valentine Family Foundation, APS, and Jody Pelusi. To learn more about the programs that are part of Arizona Opera NextGen, please visit us online at azopera.org.